Welcome to Career in Ruins, where the past comes to life in your ears. <laughs> Here we are again. Yay, we're back. We're back. <laughs> How's your week been? Not too bad. Not too bad. I had a, a great week. Um, interviewed some colleagues, had a really nice time. So I chatted to Emma Jenkins, uh, one of my colleagues at BU. Yep. Um, and we had a great chat um, that gets a little bit scatological at times, I can't lie. Um, it, it descends to a place that is quite hard to uh, describe right now. <laughs> when you say scatological, my mind went to the scat man. Ah, no, yeah. I, I definitely mean feces. Oh, <laughs> I'm not... I mean, that would be wonderful. <laughs> a career in scat. Oh, something God. completely different. <laughs> this has gone horribly wrong really early. <laughs> I know, I know. So, Lawrence, <laughs> blame you. what's caught your attention this week, Bill? <laughs> oh, boroglyphs. Okay, that's better. That's oh, boroglyphs. Bringing it back to a level. Oh, what? not boring glyphs. What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> Tree graffiti. Ah, well, why didn't you just say so? <laughs> Sounds better. What's the word? Arboroglyphs. Arbor like arbor, like a tree. Okay. Glyphs. Wow. Like writing and hieroglyphs and all that. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> yeah, it works. Um, Come on. <laughs> so recently I went out with our tree officers um, at the National Park and um, these guys are in charge of looking. Hang on, that's a job. Yeah. Okay, carry on. Like archaeologists. <laughs> Okay, yeah. okay. Someone's going to look after the trees. Tree officer. If someone's going to look after the archaeology, you need someone First to look officer, after trees. Second officer. Tree officer. <laughs> Science officer. <laughs> tree officer. Very good. <laughs> Wait till you get to the buildings officer. <laughs> um, no, and um, they found a historic database that talked about tree graffiti and some of the largest trees in the woods. So we went on a bit of a hunt to try and find a few of these um, these relic artifacts from the, with the last couple of hundred years i guess okay so these are historical records of tree graffiti that were recorded in the past or yeah well within the last 20 years oh, yeah. still yeah mm, okay mm. and um so we we'd been told of an eagle on one tree we've been told of a star of david with a date of 1870 underneath another one Wow. Um, and um, then also this massive, massive beech tree. And it, I should say it's beech trees that we we're particularly interested in because they have this lovely smooth bark that as it grows, it doesn't warp or overlap the graffiti that's been put onto the trees. Okay. And what, what, I love, what I loved about this whole episode and this experience and investigation was I, I'm always telling people that archaeology is a finite resource. Yep. Um, whilst the natural environment is important and it is of the utmost importance if you were to trash an area of land you could put a lot of resources into making it back into roughly how it was yeah 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 and it could support wildlife and habitats and other things once were you to restore it if you were to trash an archaeological site you could never put it back exactly as it was and it, it that scientific information is lost and it's not it's not about supporting anything here and now. It's about a record, a stamp of the past. Yeah, because, I mean, in a way, you can't recreate the evidence of the past. But conversely, you also can't breathe a grave. Um, <laughs> yes. But, but you can replant a tree. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and I, that's not to belittle the natural environment. No. But I, I'm just, that, that's how I always remind people why the historic environment is so important. Yeah, yeah. And tree graffiti is probably one of the most fragile records of the archaeological record or the historic record there is going mm. because um, we, we'd been shown a picture of one of these trees. It had, um, as I say, it was 18, 18, 17, 1820 that was carved on it. 
and uh, above that is this Star of David, um, or okay. what, what looks to be a Star yeah, of David. Yeah. It could be a pentagram, or it's a, or just a star. Um, eighteen seventy, it, it said it on it, but um, uh, it, it's the photo we saw of the original thing that had been taken ten years ago or something like this. It's a lovely big tree, big open space, hardy looking tree. Time's passed, and this tree has now fallen down. The the bit of the tree graffiti survives, but it's oh, wow. rotten as yeah. anything. There are woodpecker holes all over it. Um, there are trees growing out of it, using it as nutrients to support their so, new generation. So, what do you do in that situation? Do you preserve it in a way? Do you do you act to kind of step in and, and maintain that, or do you? Well, let it's it a really good question. I, we, we wouldn't maintain it, but what what we would use is technology. So we're okay. going to go pop out, back out with a camera, a digital. SLR and do some photogrammetry, photogrammetric record, recording of that feature. So we'll be able to make a, a detailed 3D model of it for prosper, prosperity. We'll put it on a website so people can see it. And we'll make a, a record of its location, its details to inform anyone that might be looking at tree graffiti in years to come. But um, it, it struck me today, going look, looking at these sites, we found broad arrowheads. We found we found a proposal on one, which I mean, it's relatively <laughs> relatively recent, I should say. But it will become part of history. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Natasha, will you marry me? It's amazing. I, I, I want to know more because it's it's a it's a connection to an individual person, isn't it? In a point in time, and I want to know who Natasha was now. I want yeah. to know did, did she say yes? Did exactly. they get married? But that, that's going to be on that tree forever. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's a really beautiful. Well, for forever, as forever yeah. as long as the tree lasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, we we found one with a. It was either an eagle or a seagull drawn on it. But again, uh, pro- possibly it's attached to the First World War sawmill that was located okay. maybe 500 meters up the track that we'd, we'd, we'd parked at the car park next to it and we have broad arrowheads that are carved into the trees linked to the the royal um association of trees and identify marking trees for shipbuilding in in, in this area and uh, fun, funnily enough my favorite fact about the broad arrowhead is it's the, the starting point for the datum points that you find. So okay, really? you know how you've got the three tripod legs yeah, and yeah, then yeah. a line above it. The tripod is actually a broad arrowhead and they just drew a line above oh, really? the top of it. Love that. That's but, a yeah. great fact. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> a very um, specific nerdy fact. That's a great yeah. fact. <laughs> um, but yeah, so love that. Really quite important bit of um, insight into mod- relatively modern history, I'd yeah, argue, yeah. but... Um, a nice insight and seeing modern tree graffiti with a proposal that is going to be there for years to come and the fragility of some of the old tree graffiti as well it's, it's been it was a really nice trip out and nice to get the tree experts input onto the, the, the trees themselves and their yeah, health yeah. and what we need to consider as heritage experts how long that tree might last and what are the threats to that so where, where does your, your tree officer um, stand on people doing that now? Presumably it's quite frowned upon to go into it. Yeah, obviously we've got, to, we've got to be careful with it. And there's, there's a responsibility to these are living, yeah, living yeah. things. And we don't want everyone going out and sticking proposals on every other tree. It doesn't become quite as important then, yeah. <laughs> as special. <laughs> no, not that tree. You're meant to look at that tree over there. I know your name's not Juliet. <laughs> so keep it to a minimum, yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, as, as, a, as a bit of history, um, particularly with from the, the management of the, the forest and other aspects with the broad arrowheads and really interesting witch marks so if you we were talked yeah, about witch marks before, yeah. yeah and we, we found a few today and just nice to see that correlation of that particular time period and 
people being scared of witch gatherings and other things like that. It's interesting in that kind of those rock carvings. And we, we talked about carvings with Christian Horn back from the Bronze Age in rocks. And it makes you wonder throughout human history how much of kind of that intangible aspect of heritage has been lost. So mm. we, we see the ones that were carved into stones because they last for millennia. Mm. But presumably, or quite likely at the same time, people were carving things into more ephemeral mediums, such as trees and woods. And, and we don't necessarily see that aspect of society mm. preserved. And I'd be really intrigued to see if I could use a time machine for a minute, to, to just nip back and see if the same stories are being told on wood as are being told on stone. Oh, is there yeah. a difference yeah, there? Yeah. If you think about some of the interpretations around Stonehenge, mm. that wood is life, stone is death. Perhaps. Madagascar as well. Yeah, yeah. Same, yeah. I mean, that um, mm. comes heavily from Mike Parker Pearson's mm. work. Do we see that reflected in the, the use of it as a medium? And I'd mm. love to... We'll never know, but I'd love to see that. Let's get in the time machine. Done. All Done. right. No more podcasts. Bye, everyone. Cheers. <laughs> what about you, mate? Oh, so it's something, I mean, and it, it kind of builds on a strand you said there about digital recording. Um, I've been thinking a lot, quite a lot recently over the last few months about um, how we communicate archaeology. And this podcast is, is an example of one way at which we, as researchers, can discuss our discipline and disseminate it to an audience that perhaps we wouldn't normally have got. But something that's been in my mind for a few years, in fact, since I had a, a really good student, uh, Rachel Stracy, she did a, a dissertation on looking at um, the use of heritage in video games. And there was a recent um, publication in Forbes magazine that had a similar thing about using um, games technology to transmit and communicate aspects of heritage. And it's something since then I've been thinking about an awful lot, how we as heritage professionals engage with that and whose responsibility is it to tell that story? Who should we be telling these stories? And if so, are we capable and equipped to do so? Mm -hmm. Or do we leave it to the games industry who have huge um, audiences and already have a captive market to take the lead on that with us kind of chasing after them? And the more I think about it, the more I kind of, I hope and I dream that one day maybe we'll be able to work closer and closer together. But certainly something I do in my own um, research, I work with um, our colleague, Rich Potter at mm -hmm. University. Yeah. Um, to Richard Potter. Richard Potter. Yeah. Or Richard Potter. No, he tell me off for Richard. <laughs> don't don't screw me up there, pal. <laughs> so he, he would shout at me for that. Um, but he he tends to flesh out my interpretations of things I've been digging or things I've been working on. So for example, I've been working on a, a medieval salt working workshop, a medieval workshop recently. And the process of reconstructing it. I was imagining doing it to communicate it to people. I put a model on Facebook that you can run around in, maybe knock over some pots and things. Um, but the process of reconstruction was almost like experimental archaeology in itself. Rich would ask me questions about oh, which beam goes on top of which beam. And I, I, I've just got a footprint. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dealing in the, the negative or the, the, the plan of it. But actually in exploring those questions and saying, would this single post that I can see in the archaeological record support this roof actually work was an incredibly useful thought process to go through. So in directly engaging with digital outreach, I found myself doing digital experimental archaeology. And I think in, in, in kind of collaborating with people external to our subject in that respect it can kind of allow us to think about things in different ways but also facilitate that level of communication that mm. we wouldn't necessarily use in our normal 
go to day-to-day research and also when archaeologists tend to engage with 3d technologies we we don't often do the best of jobs because um, yes. i mean we're, we're busy researching the past we don't have time to learn unreal engine or no <laughs> it's funny you should say i i, I did my master's in landscape archaeology yeah. gis and virtual environments and there was a whole module on using computer game technology yeah. to rebuild the an archaeological record and you know how on so, some social medias you have on this day, you can look back on yes, things you posted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just last week I opened up my on this day and it happened to be when I was doing this module in my master's at the University of Birmingham. And there was a variety of different softwares that I've been using. And one, I was like, I spent six hours on this and it looks awful. And it's just like the most <laughs> crude house that I just pulled up based, I think it was in Blender or something like that. And it's just so, I just found it so unintuitive and pointless. Mm. And the out, final output was pants. <laughs> and then um, I had my final project piece of work that was a roundhouse beat built in SketchUp oh, and then yeah, put yeah. into <laughs> another bit of software where there'd been LiDAR data to inform the topographic models. And it was sort of theoretically and scientifically sound in terms of the approaches. Like we will use accurate data, we will inform it from the archaeological record. But I, I, we had to make this little video as part of the uh, the project. Yeah, yeah. And it's just so I think I've seen it. <laughs> it's so poor. But it's the perfect example of why we should be advising the experts. Or if we are going to lead on it, we need to become experts in that and let that feed our research. Actually, that was something really interesting about what Rachel did um, for her dissertation. She... She looked at sort of video games as a starting point. One of them was Assassin's Creed. I think she looked at Tomb Raider as well. And there were some maps that they'd used in the games that were not directly lifted, but very, very similar to published archaeological interpretation maps okay. of city plans. Mm-hmm. And you could almost overlay the two, and it was picture perfect. Mm. Um, and it was remarkable to see that the, the games industry is looking for that authenticity. And are we, as a profession, engaging with that as much as we could? And I think mm. many people probably are, but... Mm. It's certainly something, sort of reflecting on my own my own career in ruins, um, that I'd like to do more of that. I think mm. and and actively give things that people can use to produce a more immersive environment. Mm. That yeah, there's a storyline, there's a narrative that they want to tell in a game, but actually, the underpinning sort of historical facts or the spatial science or the the layouts, the tools, the implements, the material culture, is kind of directly linked to cutting-edge frontline research yeah I, I i could go on about this forever because i love this as a subject <laughs> uh, just one last point just to follow because we should move on to the interview. yeah absolutely but my, my brother-in-law is an animator okay. and he used to work for a company called um crisis who make um well crisis yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh he worked for the company's called crytek sorry but he yeah. yeah they make crisis one two three they have cry engine far cry yeah, yeah um but um they also were involved in creating one of the first games that came out with the Xbox 360. Okay. Which was a, ro- I think it was called Empire or something like that. It was a, you were a, Rogan Le- a Roman legionary that led, it was a first person shoot them up but with a sword basically <laughs> and the odd uh, catapult. Or, <laughs> Sounds epic. Yeah. But, um, and it was sort of their, their showpiece bit of work they did. And I went on his stag do and a lot of the guys that worked for the company were there. And I was just chatting to them. I was I was in the middle of doing my master. I was in the middle of doing my um, yeah, yeah, yeah. my virtual <laughs> environments thing, and I felt very inadequate. But talking to them about how they do it, and they were like, oh, "We're 
we, were, we sort of went to Italy for a few weeks and we were given a few replica swords and just went at watermelons with them and uh, sort of just got, got a feel for it. And then the landscape architects wandered around Rome and Italy and just got a feel for how it was sitting. And um, the other, the artifacts, people looked at some of the artifacts. And there is a there is a small about the, the companies acknowledge, at least at the time they did, and we're talking maybe five, six years ago now, but the time they're looking at informing it through information. But it was quite crude, their input at the time, and, yeah. and they just wanted an epic thing. There was no necessary scientific input. It was just visual. So I suppose what we're really saying is we'd love to be uh, yes. historical advisors on any video game. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the best. CVs attached in links below. <laughs> right, shall we move on? Yes. Um, shall we move on to the interviews? So, yeah, tell us um, a bit more. Yeah, so Emma Jenkins is a, a professor at BU. Uh, she's a fantastically interesting human being. Uh, tremendous track record of research across the globe. And it was really nice, as with many of these interviews, and I, I've probably said this before, getting to know people I know a little bit better. Um, there's lots in in the conversation I had with Emma that I had no idea she'd been involved in and no idea she'd, she'd played a part in. And to learn that about my colleagues has been really rich and rewarding. And I hope that that conversation is, is interesting as well to our listeners. I'm excited. Let's go. Could you give us a brief history of your career to date um, in five to ten minutes of how you got to where you got today? Um, I always feel like I'm the accidental archaeologist because I didn't I wasn't one of these people who had like their own museum at the age of nine or anything. I was interested in history but I didn't really know much about archaeology. So I did classical civilization for A-level when I was in school and so I decided to go on and do classics because I had a teacher who had done classics at um, Bristol University. So I didn't study Greek and Latin, but I just did classical civilization as A-level. So he was really enthusiastic and he was really keen on promoting this. So I went to Bristol and studied and on about day three, I knew I hated it. <laughs> but being the stubborn person I am, I decided to stay with it until the following Easter, where a very close friend of mine died at that point in time. And I suddenly thought, what am I doing with my life? I'm doing something I don't particularly enjoy this is ridiculous. And I just looked around me for other options and I literally saw a sign that said archaeology and I thought, <laughs> that'll do. So I switched on to archaeology and immediately I knew that I had found what I wanted to do. Um, that's, a, that's a great start. And I, I think you're, you're not the first actually accidental archaeologist we've, we've interviewed. You changed degree at that point? Yeah, so I changed degree. I could have carried on, I could have gone straight into my second year, but I decided that archaeology was in fact quite different to classics, so that would probably be foolish. So in those days, you got four years of um, fees paid by the government. So I went back, I did the first year again, and um, I just really loved it. I loved the combination of being outdoors, the range of things you could study. I felt like whatever you were interested in, you could find it in archaeology. So I basically started again. Super. And then where did that take you from, from your undergrad on? Well, um, at that point in time, I had my personal tutor when I was an undergraduate was um, Dr. Simon Stoddart. And he was about to move to Cambridge. So he persuaded me at the end of my degree that Cambridge would be a really good place to go and do a master's, um, which actually turned out to be the case because I got some really good opportunities there, including... Um, the PhD that I eventually did. Uh -huh. So my PhD, I went, I did a master's where I um, 
think it was called something like World Archaeology, but I specialised in looking at animal and plant remains. Okay. And then I had an opportunity to look at the microfauna from Chatelhuk, which is a site in Turkey. It's um, one of the earliest towns in the world. Uh, when I say microfauna, I mean things like the small animal remains and um, and a nearby site called Pinabasha. So I was just quite lucky in meeting the right people and being in the right place at the right time. And I managed to get funding from a college to do that. So I felt very lucky that that all came together, really. So that master's led into the PhD. Yeah, so I actually did a master's looking at a cave site in Africa, in Zambia. Okay, so a a geographic leap. (laughs) Yeah, it was Middle Stone Age. But the skills that I got, which was looking at the microfauna, Mm. was transferable in some regard to looking at microfauna from Turkey. They were different species, but I kind of got my eye in. Yeah. So, and then I met um, Professor Ian Hodder, who um, said, we have someone... We have microfauna and we need somebody to look at it. And I'd also been supervised by Professor Peter Andrews, who was at the Natural History Museum. And he had been looking at the human remains at Chatelhuk. So he also said, they're a microfauna that needs studying from Chatelhuk. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happened. And I liked um, Chatelhuk at that time. It was the end of the 90s. So it was still quite, it had been excavated in the 1960s, but it was kind of being re-excavated again. Um, and what I really liked about it was that everything was recorded straight into a online database. Uh-huh. So you could get all the information you need needed to kind of contextualize your findings so you knew what they meant, where they were from, and you could interpret them more easily. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but was that one of the first sort of major sites in archaeology where that kind of digital curation came in, but also archaeological science was much more front-loaded rather than being a, something that happened afterwards? months later in a lab but actually you were involved in the cutting edge process of it yeah that's right so ian hodder was promoting this thing called archaeology at the trial's edge so he was really keen to have all the laboratory specialists on site um during excavation which is quite um well it was quite a big deal and i think one of the seasons i was there was the six month season so there were some people who were there for the entire time i went for about two or three months but yeah, it was all about the specialist giving feedback to the excavators. So the excavators could say, oh, I'm excavating this context. It's looking interesting. You know, what have you found in it? Can you give me feedback so I can decide whether to carry on digging here or whether to move into a new area? So they built um, labs for every kind of archaeological material, including things like fume cupboards. So you could extract things like phytolists that need special chemical extraction. They're plant bodies that are found, um, little silica bodies that are found in plants. So yes, it was all done on site, which was um, kind of quite exciting, but sometimes quite kind of onerous task as well. <laughs> so that's quite a huge experiment for the time in a way, wasn't mm. it? Is it looking at the, just going off track a little bit, looking at the discipline today, is it something that's carried on or is, is, is there a legacy of that kind of science at the trail's edge or is it something that hasn't blossomed in the way that perhaps it could have done since? I think it has been adopted by some people, but I think the cost of doing it is actually prohibitive for some people. Mm. So sometimes, you know, if you want to have specialists involved from the beginning on a large excavation that's, say, going on for two or three years, you're talking over a million pounds, and sometimes the funding just isn't available. But I think what it has done is shown people the benefits of integrating your specialists at an early stage Mm. and at least making sure you've got help in terms of planning the sampling strategy. And I think ideally people would like to have specialists there, it's just very difficult to make that happen sometimes. Fantastic. So that's an inc- 
incredibly strong career foundation, I guess. So where did you go from PhD onwards? Again, it was a bit of an accident. (laughs) (laughs) So I did my PhD on small animal remains. So things like basically small mammals and some amphibians. Um, And I was quite lucky because often people use them to look at past environments, which is what I was intending to do. So different species like living in different environments. So sometimes you see a change from woodlands to grasslands and you can interpret there's something happening in the environment that's making that happen. Um, But... Um, actually my career after that point ended up going into (laughs) plant remains. So I I submitted my PhD on small mammals and then I saw a notice that said that there was a researcher at University College London, the Institute of Archaeology, looking for someone to study phytoliths, which are these silica bodies in plants. And they were the same sites in the same research region that I'd already worked in, but I didn't know anything about plants. But I applied anyway, thinking, well, I've got nothing to lose. They just want a CV and a cover letter. And I got shortlisted. Uh, I found out I was in Gibraltar. I found out I'd been shortlisted. And then um, I got the job, which was fairly unexpected but quite lucky so my career kind of went off on a bit of a tangent from that point so I worked for just over two years at the Institute of Archaeology and then um, I went from there straight to the University of Reading for about four or five years on two further postdocs. And did you kind of remain in plants on that trajectory did you have you returned to animals at all yeah I always sort of carried on working on animals I stayed working on animals at Chattelhirk and what I was going to say earlier and then missed was that (laughs) the interesting thing about Chattelhirk was it wasn't just about the environment in fact it was very little about the environment because it was one of the first towns Mm -hmm. people had changed the environment so much that the whole assemblage was dominated by just one species pretty much which was the house mouse Um, but what was interesting is we were finding um, very large deposits of house mouse in um, human burials and in weird places as if people were deliberately putting mice there. But when we looked at them in more detail, it turned out they weren't the mice that were being put there, but um, probably the poo of some kind of carnivore. So it was quite a different type of microfaunal research that my PhD ended up kind of going into. That's really interesting. So some of the earliest towns in the world already were manipulating their environment to such a degree that sort of widespread biodiversity disappeared in those mm, so they were quite the sort of humanly constructed niche wow that's, that's quite big <laughs> so that was quite interesting yeah so i carried on working on microfauna and today i still i still am involved the shuttle here project's just coming to an end now and they're doing the final publications but i'm still involved in that project obviously my involvement wasn't always um as intense as it had been during my phd but i have a phd student now who's looking at um the microfauna from the contexts that were excavated during the end of the project. So those research strands that you began quite a few years ago now permeated through your career and into your students who are kind mm. of passing it on to the next generation. Yeah. So I have two PhD students, neither of whom are doing phytolists, both of whom are doing microfauna. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. There we go again. Another great start to a great interview. Yeah. Well, mate. Yeah. Well, mate. And obviously, fascinating early career, as we've seen with everyone. Yeah. Um, a little sidestep here, a sidestep yeah, there. Yeah, that's it. Um, again, I'm going to pull her up on saying that she's lucky. I, I, I'll always say you make your own luck. And yeah. And I'll say again, I'll echo what I said in the last episode. Uh, Emma's an incredibly hard working individual, and all of our luck is self made. I'm sure of it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So. We won't dwell on that, but yeah, stop saying lucky people. <laughs> <laughs> but then we, we love our job, so we are lucky. Yeah, we are. Lucky. <laughs> um, no, yeah, really interesting. <laughs> the bit that really caught my attention was the oh, six yeah? month 
season. I know that's that's easily two seasons. Really. <laughs> well, spring and summer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is that's a that's a lifestyle choice, isn't it? Six months of, of season. Gone are the days. She she hinted at the um the the costs of being uh, restrictive now. I mean, a six month season is going to have huge costs. I mean, I'd love I'd love to hear more and more about that project because it it's it was a huge one in the history of our discipline. That's it. And again, we we touched on Lucy last week about um, being a uh, case study, uh, yeah, the textbook yeah, yeah, case exactly. study, and Shutterhook is another one of those in terms of its output and its oh, content it's, and its understanding. We we chatted a little bit about the legacy of particularly the aspects of science at the trials edge, which is something that's kind of inspired me since I was an undergrad in a way. And we live in an era now where I think certainly from from my perspective, from material science, the the costs of being able to do that are getting lower and lower in the form of um, portable analytical techniques such as there's one I use often called portable x-ray fluorescence PXRF Mm -hmm. which allows me to do looks like a looks like a phaser phaser yeah yeah. Um, but allows me to chemically analyse things in the field in a moment in a moment in time so if I excavate a particularly interesting soil or an artifact or indeed I want to do a spatial survey of soil geochemistry I can do it there and then and within 24 hours decide my next move so it's it can feed back that scientific knowledge directly and straight away it is amazing I've seen you in the field using it the only thing I would ask is that you stop saying make it so every time you use it it's really hard not to kind of put yourself in those shoes (laughs) and also it's quite hard not to do a bizarre range of yoga postures as I'm analysing <laughs> the soil. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's not that difficult. You just love it. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm a poser. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, there's there's been a bit of a thread throughout the, uh, a number of our podcasts so far now is this this env- past environments. And yeah. Yeah. it's not something I've ever really studied or looked at, but I, I still find it fascinating. And the, the looking at so many different things, whereas it's, whether it's Keith looking at snail remains or whether it's macro plant fossil remains or whether it's animal bones and microfauna. Um, There are so many things that can enhance our understanding (laughs) and knowledge. And I think that we're starting to get to the crux of why we're doing this podcast because whilst there's been one theme perhaps of... um, environments yeah we've heard from so many different, different spheres people of, that have fed yeah. into our understanding of environments in different time periods and we'll, we'll hear a bit more from emma later on about um specifically what mice can tell us and <laughs> the, the story she goes off uh, the story she tells from that is fantastic and i i would never have known okay i'm a lecturer in archaeology i should know a bit of everything but actually the depth of knowledge that people have in their specialities is unreal and getting mm. even getting a flavor of that from these interviews i've i've really enjoyed mm, absolutely should we um hear the second half of our interview yeah let's crack on <laughs> Of all the things you've done, all the projects you've worked on, um, both big or small, is there any one bit that you'd kind of stand out as being particularly proud of, kind of your contribution to or what you added? I don't know. I don't think there's any one bit I'd say that really, I mean, there's bits that stood out in terms of how it affected me, in terms of my pride and what was produced. I suppose one of the things that I'm quite proud of is my involvement I mean I'm proud of my involvement in all the projects I've been involved in but I think 
There was one, which was the second postdoc I did at the University of Reading, which was the excavation of a site called Wadi Fanan 16, which is one mm. of the earliest villages in the world. It's located in Jordan. It's about between 11,000 and 12,000 years old. And it was a huge part of my life in terms of I was in the field each season for the three years, but I was also help run, helping running the project on the ground. And um, we've just published the monograph. And actually look, holding the monograph in your hand <laughs> and looking at the amount of work that went into that, that's probably the biggest publication I've been involved in in terms of the sheer volume of words and the amount of effort that has gone into it in some regards. Um, we started writing it. I can't even remember when. I mean, the last field season was 2010. I mean, I joke that I've had two children in the time that's taken <laughs> us to write that monograph. So I suppose that seeing that in hard copy was that, quite that a good moment. Special. Um, so is that a project that's finished now completely or is it ongoing or is there plans for the future? It's finished, but it wasn't fully excavated. So it's possible mm. that people could go back to it in the future. Um, and it's an amazing site. So there's a lot of potential. That's fantastic. So slightly easier question, this one, hopefully, because Many people dislike that first one. <laughs> Looking around, you obviously you're a bit like me and you you see on a day-to-day -day basis, probably far too many archaeologists, far more than anyone needs to. Um, is there any anyone's work or any other project or other thing that someone's doing that you're particularly envious of in the profession? Oh, that's difficult. That's more <laughs> difficult. Um... I don't know if I'm envious of your work, that's probably... <laughs> or something you'd like to be involved in or would have liked to be involved in maybe in the past, um, archaeologically speaking. I would like, to, if I if I could go back in time, I would... During my research for my PhD, there was um, methods being developed that would help you trace the origins of house mice looking at their dentition, okay. looking at teeth. And um, if I could go back in time, I would go... I would ask if I could go to Paris and meet with the group that was doing that at the Natural History Museum, CNRS, and incorporate, see if I could have got involved with them and maybe collaborated with them to involve that kind of research in my PhD. Um, it's been done since, but it would have been quite nice to have done it at the time that it was being developed. So what did that research process lead to first time around? What was the kind of big headline? Um, it allows you, it, there's very, so the house mouse is Mus musculus domesticus. And, I'm going to try and repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> and there are other mouse species. So there's things like Mus, um, uh, Mus macedonicus as well, which is a species that's also the same kind of genus, but... Um, isn't a isn't a commensal variety, and when we say commensal variety, they're the animals that like to live with humans. So things like house mice or foxes or those ones that you are pigeons, things yeah. that will take advantage of like um, human environment and rubbish, etc. So house mice seem to appear when people live in more permanent settlements. So one of the things that they use for is to try and work out if people are living in a settlement all the time or if they're still moving around the landscape seasonally. So um, what it allows you to do is to identify the actual Mus musculus domesticus, as opposed to Mus mastodonicus. And I did manage to do that, but it wasn't as uh, robust as it could have been yeah. if I had looked at the dentition. Okay. And it also can allow help you to trace the movement of mice. So you can actually see things like, you know, mice in different geographical locations, which have moved with humans, either as stowaways on boats, or maybe like in grain, stored grain they're carrying with them mm. through other methods. So it allows you to see movement and allows you to identify species. Fantastic. So this is a 
probably a tricky, well, they're all tricky, I guess, tricky question, in that you've probably worked at some of the biggest name sites in archaeology to date, at least for, for your period. Is there a site you'd particularly love to work on that you've never worked on or would love to do a research project on? I'd like to work at Gobratli Tepe. I think that'd be really interesting. So that's a... That's also a Neolithic site in Turkey, but it's quite spectacular in that it seems to have a lot of ritual behaviour okay. and quite different. Um, during my early career, I actually worked on sort of more sort of human evolution type sites. Oh, wow. I think they're quite interesting. Mm. I wouldn't. I quite like to go back and do more work on that kind of period as well. That sounds cool. So, what would you, what would you find or hope to find it? Um the site I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. Go back to Tappe. <laughs> I don't know. I just would like to work there. And I mean, I don't think I have any specific ideas of what I might like to find. But um, I just think it would be a really interesting site to be involved with. Since we started this podcast, Lawrence and I have been working very hard to produce a functioning time machine. Right. And for every guest, we give one return ticket. Um, where would you go? Well, what I would really, really like to know, which is sort of similar, so I don't know if this mm. is answering the question, is, so, as I said earlier, my research found human burials. Mm. Well, I didn't find the human burials, but the human burials were found, but there were some that had huge concentrations of mice in with them that had come from some kind of carnival oh, poo. Yeah, yeah. And there's always been a big debate about how they got there. And I think for a few of them, maybe four of them, they, the humans who occupied the site were deliberately placing carnival poo in human burials <laughs> i would like to go back in time and see which animal was pooing yeah see which animal it was where they were getting it from if it was deliberate why they were doing it and have answers to all those questions because that has been bugging me since i was a phd student i've got to know that's one of my favorite uses of the time machine so <laughs> i want to know about poo which which poo happened where and when yeah and why and why why would why you do that poo? why would you put poo in like your granny's burial so you and then to, bury it under your floor. If you had to guess before, or have a working theory, I suppose is a technical term, before I give you the ticket in the time machine, what, why do you think that is? I mean, that's a fascinating social act, isn't it, to just dump a bit of faeces? Yes. And when I first tried to publish the paper for my PhD, I think it got rejected three times. <laughs> I was just like, I thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my whole life. Um, until I realised it wasn't. And um, because everyone said, that's ridiculous. Why would people be putting poo in human burials? And it's like, well, it's Chassel Hick. They do lots of weird things. It's not like this is the weirdest thing they've ever done. Um, why? Of It must have had some kind of ritual, I think, mm. rather than practical function. Um, so either, I think probably the thing that was significant was the animal producing the poo okay. rather than the mice, because the mice would have been kind of hidden in the poo, the mice yeah, bones. Yeah. But obviously that's all decomposed when it's excavated so what you see is the mice bone so to you the thing that's significant is the mice but i think probably to people in the past the thing that was significant was the thing that was eating the mice now whether or not they actually encouraged some kind of carnivore like small like something small like a weasel to come into site to deliberately keep house mouse numbers down mm. could have been an option because they would have been storing grain they were early farmers yeah so mice coming in and kind of eating and getting into their stored grain would be disastrous so maybe they used to encourage small carnivores to come in and then these were kind of important to them and then i don't know maybe there were people who kind of like had a role in that humans who kind of encouraged them or managed them and maybe they were the ones that were buried <laughs> with the poo i mean this is it i really don't know i really oh. can't think of even ethnographic analogies it's amazing i think i'd quite like to come and see that happening as well so i'd like to see all i would like to see one burial in particular being buried i'd like to know who it was 
like everything about his burial. So it's a very personal visit in a way, surrounded, mm. sort of couched around Pooh. Pooh. I love that. Yeah. That's probably the best place to end, I think. My Thank career you. in Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get into these situations? <laughs> I don't know. First it was phalluses and sausages and then a uh, mini carnival poo in graves. I'm a little bit concerned <laughs> that it's us taking advantage of the time machine again. Like, <laughs> popping back. Hearing that, hearing that discussion with, um, with Emma and um, going back in the time machine a few days later, just taking a couple of bags of like with us with a bit... A few carnival poos and just placing them there to <laughs> screw with their research. <laughs> Are you suggesting that we would use our time machine for nefarious purposes? Absolutely. Yeah, we would. On that point, that. what for, <laughs> what four carnivals would you take? Because last <gasps> thing to that, I made a list. Okay. Got, do you want to hear my? Four? Yeah, go on then. Uh, lion. Okay. Quite alligator. Big. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we only have to take a small bit of it. It could be a, a, a just piece, have to take the poo. a portion of a poo. <laughs> <laughs> um, polar bear and wolf. How many of those carnivores like to eat house mice? Well, if you, we, just, <laughs> we feed one to them beforehand. Oh, you mean... Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad we don't have jobs where we have to pronounce Latin too often. <laughs> I wonder... So you were talking earlier about your tree officer. Mm. I wonder if in the past there was a poop officer <laughs> It would select the specific carnival poo that would end up in a grave. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that would be quite an important role, but it sounds of things. There was a moment when I, when we were recording that conversation where I thought we might be able to have a sort of a reflection that we normally have and somehow sidestep poo. But <laughs> like we said, <laughs> the uniqueness of this class is that we don't shy away from these big important <laughs> discussion points. But again, I mean, Emma took it right back to a serious point by the end there. But actually, there's a lot to be learned from this about um, crop management, the importance of um, grain and grain storage, and actually keeping keeping the the predators of grain mice away from it and mm. the because that's so centrally important to early agricultural communities the very animal that prevents the mice from robbing you of your livelihood robbing yeah. you of your your food stuff your subsistence is so privileged that its feces ends up in grandma's grave yes <laughs> i i'm <laughs> quite looking some sort of point yeah no you're you're absolutely right you're absolutely right i mean that's a i've never heard of us an archaeological site like that before, or any any sort of remains, but I I can't wait to hear the results of Emma's time. <laughs> well, Emma again alluded to slightly stranger things happening, and I'd love to know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> let's go. Is, there, is that she has she published it yet? Publications are coming. Uh, let's I look forward something to, to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> Emma inadvertently gave herself two trips in time machine. Oh, I know, I know. It's not me giving it away. Yeah, this time. I'll let you um, off this time. I've got nothing was, to moan about. I, I had to fight it a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, she was after the huff, huff, Hufflepuff. <laughs> or the house mice. mice. Yeah, and um, domestication, uh, domestication of animals, and and why they uh, found in, in in or not domestication, but the, the animals that are found around domestication. Yeah, so using using animals as a proxy for understanding domestication mm. of other things is quite interesting, and mm. it's it's intriguing to see kind of Emma bouncing between. Um, 
animal species and microfauna and small mammal fossils to plants and back again because the, the, the sort of tangible theme of early subsistence is kind of an early domestication of crops is kind of tied into both quite neatly mm. and you can see how she got that job um, yeah. quite clearly Absolutely. from that conversation mm. the, the wider narrative is there it's just a slightly different technique in terms of understanding it mm. and the, only, the only other thing I picked up out of that, that chat was the, how she was enthused and so excited about it, having that monograph in her hand I know and I know. It, it's something I mean I've, I've only had a few publications but I'm sure it's something you can relate to but you put so much time and effort and re- invest so much of yourself into the, that publication and um, it's, it's something quite special yeah, seeing, within our seeing something you've made or you've contributed to being a tangible resource that will survive it will outlive us all, yeah. and and that's a wonderful thing. And it's, it's something I always wanted um, within academia. It was one of my kind of early on, you write a list of career goals, and one of them was to publish something that would outlive me. Yeah. And there's something so nice about that, and the fact that publication as a medium, either through journal publication, through book publication, or even through digital publication now, the way it's it's sort of curated long term means it will survive for a long time, much in the same way I hope this podcast will. <laughs> um, but it, it's the, the way that the way that academic publishing is kind of privileged in terms of curation and long term archival storage mm. is is something that means our words will will survive for, for many many years to come could go into a big old trail about digital versus physical and uh, curation <laughs> of those things but what what i'm getting out of this whole podcast as a whole is either engrave your names into a tree or make a monograph and you'll uh, have something that outlives you and you'll be recorded into the rest of history <laughs> that sounds perfect <laughs> Great interview this week, mate. Um, really interesting again. And uh, Yeah, I loved it. I look forward to doing more. I really enjoy it. So it. Any colleagues, friends or strangers out there who want to be on the podcast, um, if your career's in ruins, let us know. That's it. Uh, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. Um, we'd love to hear from you. That's it. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Career and Ruins podcast. Please make sure that you subscribe to our downloads on whatever whatever system you receive your podcast from. Make sure you comment. Do send us any questions or thoughts you have on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We also have a Facebook page. And uh, we'll, we'll look to try and to reply to as many questions as we can, hopefully in the podcast as well. And sound production on this episode has been done by Guy from BucketofSound.com.